chapter 43. I won't be stopping. I will just be reading 14 through 21. Isaiah 43. This is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's creator, your king. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you per not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the desert and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. Will you join me? I, I saw you slip out and I thought, oops, I forgot. As we, Ben, you can just stay back there. God hears our offering right there. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gifts that we have given this morning. Thank you for allowing us jobs and opportunities to work with, um, with all that you give us. As we have given and put in the basket this morning, bless and help us to be wide stewards of what's still in our pockets. I pray that you would just bless the giver as well as the gift. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Prayers and thoughts this past week. Uh, I am doing much better, at least physically. I think my, my body's over the COVID. I'm, I'm not sure my brain is, so uh, keep an eye on me, I guess. That's a, um, but it is good back to be back with you. Um, for those of you who watch on live stream, I hope you are back with us this morning. Um, I was with you last week. Uh, I was at home trying desperately to find the live stream and being unable to. Uh, our camera was not working at all, so there was none. We, we do have a different camera this week, and uh, after managing to get it right side up instead of upside down, we hopefully do have a live stream uh, going this morning. So, again, it's good to be with you. I also wanted to mention that the flowers are from the funeral of Don Haup, uh, so continue to remember uh, the Haup family um, in in his passing. Uh, also, just you know, it, it's been a really good week 
good, really good weekend football-wise. You know, Penn State won, Ohio State won. And wasn't that an awesome game on Thursday night? <laughs> well, look at it this way. The Browns won. The Steelers moved one game closer to having Kenny Pickett as their starter. So it wasn't, it wasn't all bad. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be in your presence, Lord. And we just invite your Holy Spirit to come and work and, and move among us. I pray that you would speak through these words that you have laid on my heart, um, that your Holy Spirit would, would speak them into our hearts, that we can, we can learn and grow and we can be encouraged, uh, particularly in our prayer and our worship and our service to you, Lord, for you truly are an awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to start this morning by asking you a question, and I am actually looking for some, some feedback, some answers. I want you to think of a time when you were just really, really tired, you know, weary, exhausted. What was it that made you exhausted? What were you involved in, or, or, or what were you doing that made you so tired? If you've got an answer, just, just yell it out. What, what wore you out? What made you tired? First graders, okay. Work? Work? Church busyness, okay. All right. Anything else that you were involved in just really, really wore you out? All right. Good. That's good. Now, I want you to think of something else also. I want you to think of a time that seemed to hold out great promise for, for wonderful things to come, when really things seemed to be really falling into place for you, and you were, you were looking forward to a time of, of refreshing and growth, of excitement and, and, and new things, yet inside you were kind of dry and lifeless. And instead of receiving the blessings which God seemed to be promising, you felt like someone or, or something was just taking the life out of you. And that wonderful future that you were envisioning just seemed to unravel, unravel before your eyes. That may be a little bit more difficult. Maybe, maybe none of you have ever really even gone through something like that, but I would guess that, that most of us have. What causes those kind of situations in our lives? Again, probably a more difficult question to answer. But this morning, we're going to see a similar situation addressed by God here in these verses that we read from Isaiah 43 and the verses to follow. By the way, if you have your Bible, I would invite you to open it to that passage from Isaiah 43 because we're going to be looking at some of the verses that follow that, that Lori did not read. Now, my plan was to deliver this message last week, which was right after the message that addressed the first part of this chapter. Of course, that didn't work out that way. So let me do just a quick review. In the first 13 verses, we saw that Jehovah God, the God of the Bible, is the only true God. He is the only Savior. And He is eternal. He is without beginning or end. And He's all-powerful. No, no one can oppose His plan. No one can reverse or undo anything that he has done or anything that he will do. We also saw that we have an extraordinary position as his children. We're uniquely created for his glory. 
We're a distinct possession. We're protected by his presence. And we were extravagantly paid for because we are exceptionally valued. We're precious, we're honored, we're loved by Almighty God. And we have been chosen to know Him, to believe in Him, to understand that He is God alone. And so, because of His power and our position, we are called to live fearlessly and to help others to come to believe in Him. That's the basis for what we're talking about this morning. So in verses 14 through 21, which Lori read, God reveals his wonderful plan for the life of his people. Verses 14 and 15 are a promise promise of deliverance. He's talking about a time when Babylon has Israel in their grip. They were captives. But God says, I'm going to send them running in the very ships that they're so proud of. I can do that because I am the Lord your God. The first very obvious part of God's plan for his people is that he wants to deliver us from the enemy. He wants to deliver us from the enemy. He wants to free us from Satan's control. He wants to free us from the sins, the attitudes, the habits, the failures that so often seem to control our lives. He wants us to be free to serve him and to live for him and to become all that he wants us to be. He wants us to be free to take hold of that wonderful future that he has for us. In verses 16 and 17, God describes how he delivered the Israelites from bondage in Egypt. How he made a way for them to escape through the sea. And then he destroyed the Egyptian army in that very same sea. As I mentioned two weeks ago, this is what the Israelites Uh, the readers of of Isaiah would have thought of when they heard about salvation. God wants us to remember our past, especially our salvation. Remember when you reached out in faith in in response to the Holy Spirit's call and and you, you asked God to come into your life and he came in through his Holy Spirit and he transformed you. Paul wrote, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. That's when our Christian life began. And we need to think back to that event from time to time. We need to realize all that we've been delivered from in order to encourage ourselves not to fall back, not to return to the old ways of living and the old person that we once were. Then in verses 18 through 21, God abruptly switched gears. And he tells us to focus on what he's doing right now, what he wants to do in the future. The New Living Translation says, but forget all about that. It is nothing compared to what I'm going to do. For I am about to do a brand new thing. See, I have already begun. God calls us to remember the past, but not to dwell on it. J. Alec Motyer writes this. The past can teach and illustrate, but it is not to bind. The Lord always has greater things in store. He is revealed in the past, but he is always more than the past revealed. I like that. He is revealed in the past, but he is always more 
than the past revealed. He's always got more and newer things for us. So God calls us to move forward in the new thing He is doing, bringing spiritual life in the desert. I'm going to make a path in the desert so that my people can come back to me. God's plan, which He wants us to be very much involved in, is to draw people back to Him. It's not His will that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. God wants us to create rivers for them in the desert. He wants every one of us to have the water that satisfies and leads to eternal life. I really believe that God wants to see a revival sweep through His chosen people. I believe He wanted it back then, and I believe He wants it for us today. He says, I will make springs in the desert so that my people can be refreshed. Isn't that something that we need? We need to be refreshed. God wants our lives to be fresh and new and alive for Him. He doesn't want us to be burdened. He doesn't want our lives to be stale and cold and hard. He wants us to be growing, loving, excited in His service. He wants His Spirit to flow in our lives and in our church. Jesus said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. That's what God wants for us, his people. In verse 21, we read, I have made Israel for myself, and they will someday honor me before the whole world. I don't know if if you or I or, or even our church as a whole, I'm guessing we may never have a voice on the world stage. But I believe that God has a much bigger vision of the impact that he would like us to have in this world than we do. And so we often fail to take advantage of the opportunities that he gives us. Oz Guinness, quoted by Howard Hendricks, said, The main problem with American Christians is not that they aren't where they should be, but they are not what they should be right where they are as doctors, housewives, lawyers, computer salesmen, or nurses. We could add farmers, truck drivers, school teachers, office workers, and and even retirees. We need to be what we should be wherever we are. God has put us in our workplaces, in our, our schools. He's placed us in this community. And I believe, and I know that many of you believe, that He wants to expand our ministry. He wants living water to flow from us and bring life in a spiritual desert. All of this is God's wonderful plan for His children, for our lives. And He's calling us to to live out the calling that He has on us as a body. Okay, now let's skip down to verse 28. This is why I have disgraced your priests and assigned Israel a future of complete destruction and shame. Let me reread that. That is why I have disgraced your priests and assigned Israel a future of complete destruction and shame. What in the world has happened? How have we gone so quickly from God's wonderful plan of of, of new things and, and new life of renewal and blessing and expanded ministry? 
to an actual immediate future of disgrace, destruction, and shame. Prophet Isaiah is writing prior to or, or early in the period of Babylonian captivity. And his, writer, his writings are a mixture of, of speaking to that aspect of God's judgment and speaking to God's restoration of the nation that will come after 70 years in exile. So in verses 14 through 21, Isaiah's readers were given a picture of what was far in the future, something that probably most of them would never personally see. Their immediate future is summed summed up in verse 28, destruction and shame. If God had such great plans for the future, why were they facing desolation and disgrace immediately ahead of them? Why do God's plans for his people end up in ruins? Why do God's great plans for his people end up in ruins? God's answer is sobering for them, and I certainly hope for us. So let's go back to verse 22, which comes immediately following God's great plans. God says, yet you have not called on me, Jacob. You have not wearied yourselves for me, O Israel. You have not wearied yourself in prayer. I didn't get a whole lot of answers when I asked about you know, what had wearied you, what had exhausted you in the past. How many of you were just waiting to say, Pastor David, the last time I was really weary was because I prayed so long and so hard that I was completely spent. How many of you were going to say that? Yeah, I, I wasn't either. I pray pretty regularly. But I'm not, I'm not even really sure what it means to weary yourself in prayer. I, I'm not sure I even know what that looks like. Some people pray at the end of the day when they're already exhausted and they, they fall asleep. That's not a bad habit, but I don't think it really qualifies as wearying yourselves in prayer. I do remember a pastor's prayer retreat at, at Camp Swatara in the Atlantic Northeast District where, where um, some pastors gathered together and spent most of two days in, in prayer. That might come close. I, I admit I was weary, although I was also just exhilarated by that time. Maybe like Joseph in the Old Testament, wrestling with the angel all night to receive God's blessing. Maybe that's what it looks like. I do know this. It gets very easy when everything in our life seems to be falling into place to forget how important prayer is. To begin to neglect the fervent prayer that we practice when we were struggling or when the answers weren't coming? Do we somehow forget that prayer was the basis for all of that? Do we somehow begin to feel like we need God a little bit less? Henry Blackaby wrote, Moderate success in ministry is a spiritual hazard. It can make us content to live without the manifest presence of God. We will no more see God's wonderful plan for our lives or our church fulfilled without God's manifest presence. Then we will fly to the moon by flapping our own arms. Whatever it means to weary ourselves in prayer before God, 
we, we ought to work at discovering that and put it into practice if we want to see God's wonderful plan unfold in our lives and in our church. God's not done. In verses 23 and 24, he says this, You have not brought me sheep for burnt offerings, nor honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with grain offerings, nor wearied you with demands for incense. You have not brought, you have not bought any fragrant calamus for me, or lavished on me the fat of your sacrifice. God's saying, you have not wearied yourselves for me in worship. I have not burdened you with grain offerings, nor wearied you with demands for incense. Remember, he was talking to people who were still involved in the Old Testament sacrificial system, where you had to present offerings of of lambs and doves and, and crops of various sorts as part of worship. But he says, I haven't burdened you with this. How much less has he burdened us who don't have to go through those things? I wonder how many of you would be here this morning if you first had to rustle up a spotless lamb and drag it in here to be killed. Yet at many times we seem to consider worship a burden and we choose not to weary ourselves with it. You know, when did, when did worship become something we do when there's nothing better to do on a Sunday? Or, or for that matter, when did it get relegated to one day a week for, for an hour or two? Perhaps in these verses, God it is also suggesting you have not wearied yourselves in service. You have not wearied yourselves with service. I'm not going to belabor this point because many of you in this congregation do give a great deal of yourselves to serving God in this congregation. And, and many have been taking on new roles, and I appreciate that. We, we still sometimes fight the 80-20 principle where 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And that's why sometimes some of those 20 percenters get a little burned out. If we're going to see God's plan fulfilled, we need everyone doing their part. Let's move on to verses 24 through 26. But you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your offenses. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Review the past for me. Let us argue the matter together. State the case for your innocence. God seems to be saying, not only have you not wearied yourselves for me in in prayer and worship and service, you have wearied me with your sins. You have burdened me with your offenses. Anyone want to argue that matter or, or state your case for innocence before God? How can we weary God when he is the one who blots out our transgressions and remembers our sin no more? We weary God with unconfessed sin. John wrote, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When God has gone to such great lengths to secure our forgiveness and has made our access to that forgiveness so easy, why do we refuse to acknowledge our shortcomings and and confess our sins? Why do we try to to rationalize or make excuses for, for what we do? Our refusal must certainly weary 
God. I believe we weary God with unrepentant sin. When we are unwilling to turn away from the things in our lives that we clearly know do not honor God. When we refuse to give up attitudes and activities and habits that we know are not pleasing to Him. When we hang on to behaviors that keep us from His promise, the promise of all that God wants to do in our lives, we weary God. And He certainly must grow weary of the sins we fall into over and over again. I know that's the case with me. When victory over sin is there for the taking but we never really reach out and, and grab hold of it and get victory over that. In verses 27 and 28, God seems to be pointing particularly at leadership. Your first father sinned. Those I sent to teach you rebelled against me, so I disgraced the dignitaries of your temple. I consigned Jacob to destruction and Israel to scorn. The New Living Translation refers to leaders and priests. Like it or not, those of us who are leaders bear a special responsibility and accountability in this. You know, next week we'll be, we'll be uh, affirming leadership for the 2023 calendar year. And I'm sure there's not one per- person on that slate who is perfect. But that's not the point. The point is that we all, especially those in leadership, need to be people of prayer, people of worship, people of service. We don't need to worry ourselves to the point of of burnout, but we do need to give God our best if we want to see God's plan unfold in our lives and in the life of the church. And we also need to look at our own lives to see if we are wearying God with our sin. I hate to think that my personal sins and failures might derail God's wonderful plan for my family or or, or my church. Yet when I look at my own life, I see plenty of things that God must be getting very weary of. A number of years ago, I was sitting in another church listening to a revival message. And I have to admit that the vast majority of the message just really didn't connect with me at all. Until late in the message, when the speaker shared this ancient parable. A man sold his home to another man with one stipulation on the sale, which seemed rather minor. The seller would retain ownership of a single nail in the door frame over the front door of the home. Sometime later, the seller decided he wanted his home back, but the buyer refused to sell it to him. So the seller came, and he hung the carcass of a dead dog on a nail, on that nail over the door. The new owner couldn't remove it because the seller owned the nail. The stench and disease from the rotting carcass made the home unlivable, and soon the new owner had no choice but to give it back to the seller. If we allow Satan to hang in a nail in our house, if we allow Satan to have a foothold in our lives, he will bring such filth into our lives that we will no longer be of value to the cause of Christ. And instead of that wonderful future that God has planned for us, we will see a future of disgrace and destruction. It will be true in our own lives 
it will be true in the church. Don't allow Satan to hang a nail in your house. Don't allow sin in your life that wearies God. Instead, fill your life with prayer and with worship and with service to God. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you that you are an awesome God who through the death and resurrection of your Son has reached out to us, offered us salvation, redemption, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life with you. Lord, may we live in worship and service. May we live lives of prayers that the great and awesome things that you have for us can be a reality and we will not be pulled away by sin and by Satan's temptations. Have your way in our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.